Alexandra, I'm so happy you'll be spending the week here. Maximilian has told me all about you. I've been so looking forward to meeting you. Hello. Long time no see. My name's Brady, and as always, I'm joined by my brother Baylor and our good friend Delbert, and after a unannounced and unplanned three-week vacation, we're back for at least one more week. Who knows what the future holds, but welcome back, uh, everybody, to the Remedial Magic Podcast. Baylor, Delbert, uh, it's nice to have you here. It's been... A long time since we've <laughs> recorded this thing. It has been. I've. I'm certain that I've forgotten to add a podcast. It's been a problem trying to uh, find time. It's been very difficult, and on top of the issues with finding time, it's also it's that time of year where it's starting to get a little bit colder outside, and. There's other stuff going on, like, every day of the week. You know, the three of us are football fans, and so we're doing that at least Sundays, but also Mondays, Thursdays, Saturdays, Fridays, there's football. Like, there's there's a lot. It's hunting season for some people. Uh, I'm incredibly busy in school this year, much more busy than I was last year. Baylor's working... Lord only knows, 180 hours a week or something insane. So really, only 40 currently, but it's it's been it's been tough. But you know what? Well, we made it into the studio finally, and we're gonna make the most of it by discussing chapters 23 through 37 of Alexander Quick in the Lands Below today. Do you say 37? Yeah, 37. Just finishing the book. Strap in for a long one. Holy, wow! We've got we've got like four hours of content to make up for. You're not wrong there. So, so prepare to hear our voices for some time. That being said, uh, it's more like chapters 23 through 25, I think, if I remember correctly. And you guys might have to correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember correctly. Before this unannounced break, we decided to do a five-chapter arc, uh, all of the time that Alex is in Roanoke with Max on spring break, and we split it into two parts, and this one is the three-chapter part. Is that right? Yes. Yep, that is correct. Because of that, we will also not have an arc title or an arc MVP until our next recording so check that out October 31st. <laughs> that is uh, the good news is that we will have a casting in this episode. So there is at least one extra segment and then all of that stuff will return for the next episode which will hopefully be before October 31st. Uh but if one comes out on October 31st, that's pretty cool because that is our 1 year anniversary officially. It's coming up. It's been a heck of a year, that's for sure. It has been. We're gonna we're gonna shoot for a little more consistency going forward. We'll we'll get it figured out. We want to get through this book, and 
move on. You know, if we hadn't missed three weeks, we'd probably be wrapping this book up in the next, I would guess, two or three episodes. Yeah. Sure would be. <laughs> I'm pretty burnt out if uh, you guys in the audience can't tell. Had a heck of a day today. So, well, strap apologies. On, strap on your game face because we've got an hour and roughly ten more minutes of riveting content to get to talking about Alex and her trip to Max's hometown in Roanoke. And I I will say, uh, even though we've been on a long break and we've been laughing about it and joking about it, I've been excited to get back into talking about this section specifically because we get to learn way more about the wizarding world now than we do when Alex is usually at Charmbridge. And so I, I am excited about that. It's kind of really our first look away from, like, adults in the Wizarding World in this series so far. Obviously, we saw the Goblin Market and stuff, but, you know, they they had a chaperone during that trip. So this is kind of a, a cool inside look into the Wizarding World that we didn't really get in Harry Potter, if I'm remembering correct. I We don't really see Harry go very many places that have an actual society. Right, we did see him go to number twelve Grimald Place, but the whole time he is there, he's inside the house, hiding with the order. And he also went to the burrow, but the whole time he's there, they're at the burrow. They don't really go anywhere. So the fact that we're gonna get to see an actual wizarding function happening outside of a school setting is it's different for sure. You're forgetting one great five second Harry Potter field trip. What's that? When he goes to Diagon Alley. Yeah, I guess he does go to Diagon and Nocturne Alley both, but it's also, it's not really the same, you know? True. We're seeing Alex go to a place here where she gets to be a member of Wizarding Society without some kind of agenda, right? And basically every time we see Harry do something like go to Diagon Alley, He's there for a reason, and once that reason is fulfilled, they kind of move on. So it's uh, it's interesting. It's curious to see what happens now that she's kind of off the beaten path a little bit, whether she'll get into a fight with with some people who are hunting or almost get killed by a giant purple worm. That's yet to be seen, but uh, if her life is anything like our D&D campaign, which has been consistent over the past three weeks, then that's probably going to happen to her. At any rate, we don't have a lot of Harry Potter news to talk about, I don't think. J.K. Rowling has made an ass of herself again uh, by publishing a book, making herself look good and making the basically the rest of the world that thinks she's being stupid look bad or trying to anyways. But other than that, there's nothing going on Harry Potter related that I can tell at least from the last three weeks. Nothing yeah, Harry Potter nothing related. Here. I haven't heard any, I haven't heard any news about the new game or anything really. So we're still waiting with bated breath to see what will, what'll happen next in the Harry Potter universe. I do however, have the most uplifting news of, uh, all 2022 which is what Brennan Fraser is back baby 
He is. And he's doing good work. He's doing good work. I love that guy. He's always done good work. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to to paint him in a bad light in any respect, I think. So the fact that he's had a lot of success in the last month or so has been pretty gratifying to see, I think. But regardless, since there is such a lack of news and there's a lack of a lot of things going on right now, including enthusiasm from Delbert, I think we're going to jump right into the episode. Uh, As I said, we discussed chapters 23, 24, and 25 this week, or we're going to discuss them this week. And previous to this, we discussed, I want to say, chapters 20, 21, and 22. No, chapters 21 and 22 only, uh, which were about the obol, the mysterious coin that Alex received from Charlie after he stole it from Darla. We saw Darla lose her mind and over this obol, she obviously wants it for some reason, and we found out that an obol is not just a coin that takes you to the river Styx. It's a coin that makes house elves everywhere weep. Uh, we also saw Alex turn 13, making her officially a witch in the Wizarding Society, I suppose. Uh, have a nice birthday party, receive a broom from her brother Max as a gift, and Really, it was a nice chapter to set up what's hopefully some family fun coming up. But we don't know for sure what's coming up yet because we haven't discussed it. So, Baylor, if you would summarize these three chapters for us, that would be great. So we begin these three chapters with chapter 23 titled The Roanoke Underhill. And we begin still in Charmbridge. Um, Alex is studying for some tests, trying to figure out what the lands below is. Um, and basically contemplating whether or not she will go with Max. Uh, ends up that she does, of course, go with Max. Um, they hop on the train. Excuse me. They take a bus to the Wizard Rail train in, in Chicago. And then from there, they hop on the train and head to, uh, I, I guess, the Roanoke area. I'm not sure what the official... Um, I believe it's called New Roanoke. They head to New Roanoke. And uh, upon getting to New Roanoke, uh, they hop off the train, and uh, a fun girl uh, approaches them, hugging them, uh, and obviously this is her half-sister, Julia. So we meet Julia right away, a very joyous uh, older sibling of Alex. Uh, Then we also kind of get a nice throwback to the Harry Potter series. We see our first Thestral. Um, and in fact, it is actually pulling a carriage that in, uh, c- contains within uh, Max and Julia's mom. And uh, they hop in that uh, carriage and head to um, the island on which they live. And it's kind of cool because the Thestral acts like a normal carriage, uh, but then flies over the sea, obviously pulling the carriage along behind it. Uh, they then get to the mansion, and Alex is kind of blown away by the amount of house elves and how they they act and everything. They're very courteous. They're always there uh, trying to help. And Alex is pretty impressed by this. Um, she ends up taking a bath and heading to bed pretty pretty early. Uh, the next chapter, titled Croatoa, she kind of learns about this this homestead, this, uh, this manor here on New Roanoke. Uh, she meets some more of the house elves. Uh, we are introduced to what is called a granion, which is basically another 
flying horse, I, I assume. Uh, and we, uh, Alex basically is taught how to ride this granion. Um, this does include some of her usual tomfoolery, of course. She tries to take off before uh, everyone thinks that she's ready, and she thinks she's playing a hilarious joke, but then both Miss King, who is very imposing, tells her, don't ever do something that the adults don't tell you to do, or else you won't ever ride one of these again. And also the um, the Granian Keeper is also very upset. Uh, regardless, she's still in good favor with them, of course. Uh, she is a guest, and they take her flying around the island, so she sees a lot of abandoned ruins on the island and all that good stuff. Uh, then, at, at that dinner that night, they talk about what is called the Cotillion, I believe, which is basically a dinner and dance uh, that was used in olden, tan- olden times to introduce brides with potential grooms, or I guess grooms with potential brides probably is more appropriate, given the old-fashionedness. Um, and basically, they are trying to convince Miss King to, to go to this thing. And then uh, she finally relents, says, yes, let's do it. And then they head into town to buy some buy some clothes, in which Alex and Julia both pick up very, I'm assuming, fine-looking dress-style robes um, and slippers. Um, we also find out that these are free of charge for uh, presumably Julia and Alex uh, from Abraham Thorne, to be discussed, I'm sure. Um, and then they head back. Or they, excuse me, they head to um, the ice cream shop, have some 99 flavor ice cream. They run into an interesting fella named Alimus, who, first off, immediately recognizes recognizes Alex as one of Abraham Thorne's kids, and secondly, basically threatens them that they probably don't want to go to the Cotillion that night. Nonetheless, they are still heading to the Cotillion, and that's kind of where we leave off. In this, uh, in chapter twenty-five, also chapter twenty-five, sorry, is named Colonials and Indians. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of information in these three chapters. Can I ask a question? Shoot, why is chapter twenty-five called Colonials and Indians? I don't know. My o- my only thought is the ghosts that are in the forest. Kind of a a, a funny little tidbit. I don't know if it, it'll play in in the coming chapters, but uh, we find out that the there's ghosts that live in the woods and sometimes they get bored. So they just go to war at each other again. So you have colonial ghosts and, and Indian ghosts. And Julia even said sometimes pirate ghosts join in and they have a little war, even though they can't <laughs> just, kill each other. I guess that makes sense, but man, does that have nothing to do with what actually happens in this chapter? You yeah, know? absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was very confused where that played in other than that. <laughs> I almost wonder if instead of being a pull for what's in the chapter, if it's a historical reference, because Roanoke is also the lost colony, where a bunch of European settlers settled it, and then when people went to go check on how the settlement was doing, it was gone entirely. Uh, It certainly has something to do with that, what you're talking about. We know Inverarty does his research. I just... It doesn't seem to me that it matters all that much, at least for what we're seeing at the moment. Uh, that being said, these are some pretty good chapters, I think. They're not too bad. We have kind of a lot going on. Uh, one of the big themes of this, these chapters is how people really don't like the thorns, it seems like. You know, like even here... 
where they are mega rich, live on an island, and raise essentially designer flying horses for people. When they get into town, people let them know that you're gonna be that they're gonna be inviting a lot of ill will if they show up to this function that they're planning to go to, this cotillion uh dance thing. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting turn in these three chapters. I'm sure I'm sure we'll discuss it here in a bit, but there definitely was a lot of joyous things happening, I would say. Even like the ghosts were kind of a funny little tidbit that Julia threw in there, even though they kind of seemed menacing at first. Um, this definitely, this, this Alimus guy definitely, I think, is the biggest risk that we've seen outside of school thus far in the series. He definitely seems like he's trying to intimidate them into not showing up at whatever this event is with his words. And obviously it's not going to work, but it seems as though he's attempting to do that. I want to go back to the train ride uh, at the in Chapter 23. Mainly for one reason, I mean... Obviously, it's interesting that we get to see the wizard rail for the first time through Alex's eyes on their way to New Roanoke, but I want to talk more about the porter house elves that are working in the train that are bringing drinks and food and checking tickets and stuff for the people that are in first class because, of course, Maximilian's got the cash to get Alex and himself tickets in first class, and it makes sense knowing what his home is like, but... I find it interesting that these specific house elves take tips. And I want to know what you guys think of this because I think it's a direct link to something else that we've already read about in this book. I have zero idea where you're going. But now that you mention it, the thing that I think this is is like those restaurant owners in the muggle world who uh, take all their servers' tips. It's just extra money to the railway. I suppose it could be. That's definitely not what I think is going on. I'm sure your answer is a little bit more supportive. Yeah, the only thing I could think of would be a possible a spew, like like a change made by a spew, I guess. And that possibly could be it too, but what I'm thinking more of is this is like a traditional homage to the fact that you give a coin to a house elf to porter you to the lands below. And so you're tipping the porter elf working on the train because they're the ones transporting you from one place to another in this sense as well. And this is like the modern take on that. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me. Because for sure. Max, all he'll say about it is that these elves are different than normal house elves. Mm -hmm. Right, well, and I so I believe they have some kind of status relating to whatever this thing with the lands below is. Well, I believe he says something along the lines of that you have to tip them, right? Or it's the proper thing to do or something like that? He says it's the proper thing to do and that yeah. it's like looked looked poorly upon by some, but uh, I don't know. I just think it's like a little homage to what's going on with the Obel, sort of. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's why he's saying that is because they're these older, old-fashioned people are used to, uh, I guess, going into the lands below for some unknown reason, 
And so they just, it's kind of just a tradition. So yeah, I, I can definitely see where you're, where you're coming from there. It's definitely interesting. The other thing I find interesting about the train ride is that they stay above ground for a while, but eventually end up underground. And Alex is surprised that there's tunnels that go from Chicago all the way to Roanoke in Massachusetts. And then Max kind of indicates that's not really what's going on, that there's some strange magic happening here. And so are we saying that we're teleporting entire trains across the country? Is that what's going on? I mean, it's got to be something like that, right? <laughs> it's if if it's magic related, it's it's definitely going to be something that just takes all delay out of it. I guess. I, I mean, I guess they were on the train for a little bit, little while, so maybe it's just sped up. Like they just go straight through the the earth and don't have to turn or anything. But I don't know. There's there's definitely something like that going on. Yeah. All right. I'm reinvigorated. I'm ready for just a terrible theory. We were wondering why the later chapter is called Colonials and Indians. That ties in directly here. Using both my knowledge of physics and Baylor the engineer can back me up. And my love of history, I know that Indians used to hunt by listening at the ground because sound waves travel faster through the ground. So this magic is turning the train and its occupants into sound waves and transporting it through the ground, which is why they get to Roanoke faster. Boom. That's interesting. I can't argue with it. Right. I can't think of an argument against it. It all ties in. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Unless Inverarity says different, I guess that's canon now. Cool. Yeah, we're setting the uh, <laughs> we're setting the canon on this podcast. I think the wizard rail system is interesting also because when it's above ground it works sort of like the night bus does where it kind of does things adjacent to where the muggles are and the muggles just don't notice it, but one thing I don't understand is how is it operating in such a way that it takes Alex by surprise that there's like no issues with muggle crossings or with it interfering with muggle travel or anything like that. I don't think that part of America is built in such a way where you could have a long train line that doesn't come across buildings, roads, people, whatever. And so I'm very curious about how that's working. And I think a train's different than the night bus. You can't just explain a train away by saying, well, muggles don't pay attention, do they? You know what I mean? I don't know. The wizard rail is an interesting, interesting method of travel, I think. The way that I took that was not that she, not that the train wasn't around areas of, of roads and buildings and stuff. It's just that using magic, they would go over the road without interrupting traffic or they would go around the building or the building would move out of the way in the case of uh, the night bus. So I think it definitely was in in Muggle cities and Muggle areas that just magic themselves through it without any issue. I mean, realistically, it's just uh, 
a place where as the reader you have to go into a little bit of suspension of disbelief and just accept at face value what's being said but practically and realistically it doesn't make sense here's what we do when we make our movie of these books with all our casting choices we just fade out as she enters the wizard rail in Chicago and then we fade back in with her coming out of the wizard rail in Roanoke and we leave it to uh everyone's mind yeah, but of we how can't, it works. We can't do that because we have to include the tipping of the elf because it is an homage to the lands below. We'll just put him outside and <laughs> she'll tip him a coin or uh Max will tip him a coin to take their luggage. Yeah, I mean that's fair. Yeah. Sure. Directorial vision. So the train ride's interesting for those reasons. Uh, Story-wise, it's probably not that important, but it does take us to where we meet Julia, who is Max's full-blood sister and Alex's half-sister. And Julia is the opposite of Alex, I think. She's like the antithesis of Alex. I don't know if you guys agree, but Alex is like pretty sulky and snarky and kind of in a bad attitude a lot. And Julia is like, I'm surprised she's not floating with how bubbly she is, you know? Yeah, she definitely seems like a happy person. That's for sure. Very excited. Jittery. I can't wait for the rewritten version where she's the main character. Much more fun. Yeah, but probably boring. She <laughs> probably. Just, <laughs> she, she's One thing about Julia we find out is that she does not get to interact in wizarding society very much. Certainly not much compared to, I would say, normal citizens whose fathers aren't wanted by the Confederation. Uh, but that certainly doesn't stop her from having an incredibly good attitude. And she also brings out a side of Max that we don't usually see, which is kind of the more bashful shy, uh, playful version of Max. We don't really see that with him and Alex very much. He's more more of a like a leader in Alex's situation, but Julia sort of puts him on his heels a little bit, I think. Right. No, I agree with that. It also could be that when he's at school, he's always representing the J-Rock as well, so definitely a different area to see him in. I know for me personally, I'm definitely a lot more comfortable around family and friends, you know, that I've known a lot versus being put basically in a whole new school that of people I don't know. So I, I definitely could see him being a bit more comfortable being at home. I agree. I think that makes total sense, and I'm excited for possibly to see what that translates to moving forward. But for me, more importantly in this chapter, I want to talk about the fact that not only does their family raise flying horses, they also raise Thestrals, and they live on a magical island. And I think that is really, really cool. Uh, it's also really interesting to see them kind of be surprised, at least Julia, be kind of surprised that Alex can see the Thestral. Uh, we know it's because she saw Ben Journey die. I don't know if you consider it suicide or if you would pin that on her father, but regardless, she can see the Thestral, and 
we just had this really happy moment where Julia shows up and introduces herself and she's all excited and bright. And it gets brought down almost immediately by the reminder that, hey, people are dying in this book series. Yeah. Do you guys think that Max could see the the Thestral? I'm curious about that as well. Also curious about that. I assume Miss King can, is my guess. I don't know about Max or Julia. Let's see. Uh... Miss King tells Alex that it's a Thestral, and she kind of informs the group as a whole that only someone who has witnessed death can see them, and we don't really see Max or Julia make any indication that they can or can't, so it's kind of tough to know, I suppose. Regardless, a cool entry into where Max is from, right, with Roanoke. Agreed. They get in a cart pulled by a Thestral, and the Thestral takes off into the air and flies them across the ocean to land at Croatoa, which is the name of, I assume it's the name of the island, but it's also the name of the homestead where the where the horses are being raised. Right. I also, before we move into the next chapter, wanted to bring up a couple things that we didn't really mention. One is there is a port key station in the wizard rail. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Which is cool. It is cool. And two, Anna seems to still hate Max and Martin. Makes sense. She didn't have a very fun time. Constance and Forbearance seem to swoon a little bit over Max. So that's a little interesting. Yeah, they apparently have a little bit of a crush on him. Yeah, seems that way. Uh, What I have to say about Anna is pretty simple. She's kind of just been annoying the whole book so far, in my opinion. And her dislike of Max, frankly, again, is not Max's fault. It's her fault. She comes off a little spoiled whenever she's talking about Max, in my opinion. Yeah. I also do like that Alex kind of puts her in her place right before break by saying, I'll make you a deal. You make friends with Tomo and I'll make friends with Darla. And Anna says, well, that's different. And she's like, you're right. I have a reason to dislike Darla. (laughs) That is true. I guess we did. Kind of savage. We did skip over that a little bit, but uh, it's just a quick reminder that Alex has basically made Darla her sworn enemy at this point. Right. And that Anna is a racist, as we've said for quite some time. Right. A great a great statement made by the book as well, just to the, the world at large. Uh, actually, yeah. If you if you look into it that way, it is a from a like a socio political standpoint, it is a, a solid statement being made. Yeah. Now, we do get a description of Julia here coming up. We do. And since she's been introduced, and we can assume she's relatively important, I think maybe we should just cast her. Agreed. We're going to learn a little more about her, but we already know from next chapter, so we might as well cast her now. That sounds good. So, Julia 
half-sister to Alex, seemingly full sister to Max. We have the descriptions in the chat. Baylor, who are you casting? Mmm, spicy. Well, I thought, typically with the castings, I try to go with the first person I can think of if I think of somebody, because, you know, I can't really usually think of anybody else. Um, and so for Julia King, I went with Anna Kendrick, and I figured an Anna Kendrick from like a Pitch Perfect style movie would be a, a good a good one. Okay. It's not a person who crossed my mind immediately, but it works, I think. She, actually, if you think about Anna Kendrick from the Twilight movies, when she played one of Bella's sort of friends in that, it's pretty fitting, actually. Yeah, that's actually a great idea. I changed that to Anna Kendrick from Twilight. Great. I hated her character in Twilight, but that's okay. Well, her character <laughs> in Twilight's not fun, but the personality is relatively there. She cares about looking pretty and wearing dresses and stuff, so I see it. That is fair. I'll save you, Brady, so that you can save this, hopefully. Because I went with someone who is an actress, but probably not a lot of people know that. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't expect you to do anything else. She's a singer. She was on Dancing with the Stars kid version. And her sister is the ballerina in several of Sia's songs. Okay. But I am going with Kenzie Ziegler, her younger sister. Yeah, I've heard of her. Have you? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, But I was just trying to think, who's like youngish that I know? And I knew Maddie Ziegler. And I looked at her and was like, eh, that doesn't fit. And then I saw a picture of her sister and I'm like, ah, that kind of fits. So life is good. I'm just going to have to trust your opinion on this one because I don't know who that is. Wait, I just showed you a picture. I know, and that didn't help. Well, it wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to make you say yes or no. As in, could it be Julia? We know that Julia has brown hair. She's the only person in this entire (laughs) book, the entirety of the American Wizarding Society, with brown hair instead of black hair, meaning, sure. True. It could work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Fine, Brady. Go. Well, I have... you're Mr. Perfect... I wouldn't say I'm Mr. Perfect, but I have been consuming Critical Role at a furious pace because something just happened in the newest campaign that I'd like to get to soon. So I'm trying to finish campaign two. And Julia is the most bubbly character we've seen in this series by far. Obviously, you can tell that it's not even in question that she's the happiest person we've seen so far in this series. And so she reminds me very much of one Jester Lavore, who's played by Laura Bailey in Critical Role, and so I'm going to go with Laura Bailey. Incredible. She's like 59. Uh, she's like in her 30s, I think, <laughs> but regardless of if she's in her 30s or not, age has been thrown out the window in our casting yeah, segments. Yeah, that's so entirely accurate. If this is an animated series... I think Laura Bailey can play the animated version of Julia just fine. Ooh, if we did animated, we could go a lot further with casting. It's true. Yeah. It's true. But I think her her 
the way she's played Jester in Critical Role, the second campaign, would lend itself very well to playing a bubbly, happy-go-lucky character like Julia uh, in our fake, never-going-to-be-able-to-afford-it movie that we're casting. Uh, you never know when the lottery comes around. If any of us wins the lottery and we decide to make a movie out of these books instead of doing something else, uh, that's a mistake. It's a big lottery. <laughs> we can do both. So, regardless, that's the casting segment. Uh, Anna Kendrick, Kelly Ziegler? Kenzie. Kenzie Ziegler and Laura Bailey have been casted. Uh, not bad, I suppose. Yeah. I never know how to react to the casting segment. So. Better than Josh Allen. Right. That is, Josh Allen yeah. is the floor of our <laughs> right. casting so far. Hell yeah. <laughs> Uh, that being said, though, we should get back to the book. Uh, the next chapter is 24. It's called Croatoa, which, of course, is the island where where Max and Julia and their mom live. And it's an interesting place. Uh, one of the things that's very interesting is this is Alex's first real experience with what true house elves are, I think. And so these are different than the Porter Elves we saw in the last chapter because they're there to wait on you hand and foot and you're not expected to do anything but give them command after command after command, right? And I don't know if we've talked about it before. We probably have, but the difference in the way like David Washington thinks house elves want to be treated and the way they apparently actually want to be treated is pretty significant and that's made even more apparent in this chapter yeah I think Inverarty did a good job continuing just the the idea with these house elves that them being a free elf other than Dobby is the worst thing that could ever happen to them and so I think the way he wrote it you know satisfied that requirement to a T I think there's a chance that Dobby is legitimately ill, and that's what's going on. <laughs> well, he's not in this book. He's not in this book because he's been killed by Bellatrix Lestrange at this point, but... Yeah. He's the literally the only house elf in this book or in the Harry Potter series that ever mentioned ever wanting to be free. And he probably didn't breed, so that feeling is dead. Right, that feeling's dead because feelings are genetic in house elves. Right, absolutely. So, yep. <laughs> I, I just think that the house elf thing is very black and white, to be honest. Like the more that I read this series, and the more I think about the Harry Potter series, the gray area that sits in between house elves are fine where they're at, and and having a house elf is bad. It seems like it doesn't exist, right? Take it from the mouth of the house elves. They, like, lose their mind when at the suggestion of being freed. You know? So I don't... I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily equatable to, like, a modern-day version of slavery, to be honest. So you're leaving a spew. Well, I would have never joined it to begin with, to be honest, because they're... A spew 
Spew in general is one of those organizations that claims they're doing good, but they're so ignorant to what's going on in the real world that their actions have no bearing at all on what's happening. Yeah, I think especially in David Washington's case, he probably has never spent time in a house like this with actual house elves. Uh, That's exactly correct. As far as I can tell, David Washington doesn't even talk to house elves, even the ones in the school that Alex has made him aware of. That's exactly right. It's David is the ultimate person who gives you his help when you didn't ask for it, and, and then it's not actually helpful. It's just an inconvenience. you know. Right. And that's kind of what a spew is doing a little bit. So right. we got on this diatribe about house elves, but for real, the more I read about house elves, the more I think that they're legitimately saying we want to be doing this, you know? I don't know. It's a little tricky because it's kind of like it's pretty touchy given circa 1850s and 60s America or and stuff, but, you know. True. Who knows? Regardless, the home of Maximilian King seems pretty cool. Agreed. Yeah, it's it's, it's very, very nice. fancy. Yeah. And they're it, like mega it, rich. Uh, definitely rich. And it's funny that you bring that up because I actually was wondering, and this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit, um, when when they're at the shop, but the way that Max is talking about how Alex picks up this dress, the, the dress rubs and says, don't worry, it's taken care of. And clearly Julia appears to be getting tons of clothes uh, and her mom's not even there. So do you think that their wealth comes from Abraham? Because yes. Okay. Well, that was easy. <laughs> I think both is probably likely. Obviously, I think the horses are very expensive and they make good money off of that, but I am going to guess, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that Abraham's family, including him, are a very old, very wealthy wizarding family. Yeah. Here's my thought. Max is pretty old-fashioned. Like, he's probably not as bad as how he's describing the old colonials. But he's pretty bad as far as old-fashioned goes. And if I think of old-fashioned politicians, typically they came from wealth and married into more wealth. Like, George Washington was somewhat wealthy, and then he married into widowed Martha Washington's gigantic plantation. Uh, Alexander Hamilton wasn't very wealthy and then married into one of the wealthiest families in America. So I think that Abraham Thorne was likely wealthy, but that the kings were probably also very wealthy and powerful, especially because back when this marriage was happening, Abraham Thorne was still a rising politician. Yeah, you're correct, I think, and especially... There's more evidence for that in the fact that Max is talking to Alex about how if she hangs out with Muggleborn, she's not going to have a marriage of somebody with high status and stuff. That's what I'm talking about is Max being very, like, old-fashioned kind of. He's, like, talking about, about matches and stuff like that. That's not how people today talk. You know what I mean? It's not how they talk, but even what you're saying with you're a rising politician you need more power, you need more access to capital, you need more notoriety. Even today, marriages like that happen. Oh, yeah. That's not talked about yeah. in the same way, but it does make sense that 
Abraham may have married Miss King in this instance because he cared for her, but also because of the impact that having her family on his side could bring to his political career or his other ambitions, whatever that may be. Yeah, I agree. What do you guys think of the the fact that all of their like ancestors are just in portraits inside their house? Weird. It's a bit strange. It's also it's kind of comforting in a way. Like you know, it if you could talk to your dead grandma or whatever when you were feeling lonely and stuff and you could go speak to her and get comforted even if it's not like actually her it's more of an imprint of her or whatever i could see how that would be kind of cathartic yes sometimes. my dead grandma who refused to give inheritance to the grandchildren because well, <laughs> of the three adopted non-white grandchildren <laughs> i may not want to talk to her very often <laughs> well sure I, I wasn't like speaking to your specific situation. Right. <laughs> More the sentiment of people maybe in general. I don't know. I feel like if you go three generations back, you might have like an hour long interview and then never want to talk to that relative again. Uh, Well, maybe, but yeah. you know, I, I could see the value in it one way or the other. In this instance, do I think that's what's going on? No. I think it's because, again, this is an old traditional wizarding family, and I think honoring your ancestors is probably important when you're part of an old traditional wizarding family. You know what is the real tragedy of Croatoa? What's that? The poor house elf named Deezy who was clearly created before the Ligma trend of 2017. <laughs> <laughs> I that literally name, had not thought of that. Yeah, until. that name did not survive the <laughs> uh, the memes, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe least... that's what started the memes. It was Inverarty. He was the creator <laughs> of the Ligma. Nice. That's true. One of the ho- other house elves is named Candice, so. Ooh. Yikes. Huh. Well, off the back of that, uh, what else did you guys find interesting from this chapter? It appears that Abraham Thorne is a good guy towards house elves. It does seem that way. He apparently passed some pro-house elf legislation at one point, which is pretty neat to hear. It's nice to get a reminder sometimes that he might actually be all right instead of just all the bad stuff we constantly hear. Oh, yeah. I want to know more about the wizarding invention called the Thama Freeze. The Thama Freeze, yeah. Yeah. Is that just a magical freezer? When, uh, I believe, Deezy, yep, Deezy, <laughs> oh, my Lord, goes and gets tuna from the Thama Freeze. I, that's my, like, understanding, is that it's some sort of magically 
like Magic Freezer, like you said. I, I can't think of anything else. It Again, I'm talking of, of D&D, but I thought of the spell Thaumaturgy from D&D, okay. right, which can do some, has some different effects and things. Uh, but looking at just the word Thaumaturgy, uh, it basically just means like miracle worker or ability of somebody to use magic to perform miracles. And so I think it makes sense that this is a magical freezer based on that. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know if I'm getting too far ahead, but you said, what do you find interesting? And I do find that they have a squib watching over their magical horses. Kind of interesting. Yep. It's a little bit outside the house, but still within their property. And one thing that I almost forgot to bring up is this island is home to several wizarding families and a muggle town where they know better than to walk around the island. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, I'm glad you brought both of those things up because they're they're both things I want to talk about. Uh, The first one being the squib thing, and not really, it's not really surprising to me. We know that there are squibs that choose to live in the wizarding world regardless of if they can do magic or not. But the thing I want to ask about is, if you were a squib, would you choose to live in a place where you know you should be able to do magic and you just can't? Probably. I would think it would depend on my upbringing, I guess. Like if my parents were more inclusive of muggle stuff, then perhaps you could do it. But it appears that her family is not quite that way because she never was able to assimilate into Muggle society. She just was too different, according to to one of the siblings, I believe. If I'm a squib, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to get rich enough to buy a house elf, and then I'm set. Like, you see it in this chapter. They clean everything. They cook for you. I mean, your life gets significantly easier. So, yeah, I would stay in the wizarding world for sure. I agree that you probably stay in the wizarding world because once you've seen magic, how could you ever go back to the muggle world and be fine with it? And is there other stuff you can do? Like, can you still operate magical items as a squid? I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. In the mainline series, we only ever see Filch sweeping. Right. Or yelling at people. And uh, what's her name? Mrs. Fig who lives across the street from the Dursleys, we don't ever see her do anything except for play with her cats, I guess. Like, there's very little to suggest that squibs can do anything relevant to the magical world, but there's also very little to suggest they can't. Could a squib ride a broom? I don't know. First ears have to put their hand out and say, up. But once they mount the broom, I mean, Neville takes off basically on his own without knowing what he's doing. I mean, it depends, yeah. right? That it depends if the charm making the broom fly is inherent to the broom or if it's powered by the inherent magical ability of the wizard, you know? If only we had some movie that could show us a non-magical person using magical tools and doing something cool in a giant ballroom. Yeah, but he wasn't actually doing it. Ah, uh, we didn't see it. Didn't exist. <laughs> what? Whole series. Gone from my mind. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I think being a squib would really suck. Yeah, it sucks yeah, it, quite it's, a bit. It would. 
it's the wizard version of a muggle-born, right? But if you're a muggle-born, your life just got way more cool. And if you're a squib, your life is just like, oh, everybody around me can do really awesome stuff and manipulate the laws of physics and everything, and I just don't. Like, I can't even imagine, you know? also wonder how squibs are treated in other places. Like, Ozarkers seem very, like, how do I say this? Like, familial, in a sense, I guess. So, like, if one of them's born a squib, do they just stay as a member of the family in the area? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's like, there's got to be fan fiction out there about this exact thing. Probably. I just don't can't imagine how miserable it would be but if you're a squib you do get sort of the best of both worlds because if you needed to go seek like modern medicine you probably could and fit right in if you wanted to but you also get to live around wizards who can kind of do whatever they want so i don't know yeah it seems it seems like miss king and and their family are a bit more of of a not a traditional family as in they they are inclusive of of a squib i feel like i wonder if squibs squibs are typically shunned i wonder now if squibs get magical ailments or normal ones oh do they get chicken pox or dragon pox imagine you can't do magic and you still get the worst of the wizarding diseases yeah (laughs) be a problem i also have wondered before if chicken pox and dragon pox are just the same thing. The same exact but thing. wizards call it something different because right. they're not muggles, you know. Uh, regardless, we also wanted to talk about your other point, Delbert. Uh, so if you wanted to kind of explain a bit more about why you brought that up, that'd be great. Well, we talked about this island they're on, and they're not there alone. It seems like there's other ranches, magical ranches around. But they also mentioned that there's a muggle village on the south side of the island, and they know better than to go around the island. So, have people just been killing the muggles that see too much? I was going to ask, what do you suppose that means? Certainly, there's no way that people are just going missing. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily the case, but... It might be that they stumble out of the village and one day come back not having any idea who they are anymore. Just getting obliviated? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if it's that or if there's some magical creature that's only, you know, from this area that would do, you know, maim them or some something else. Or even just the ghosts, I feel like, would, would put you into shock maybe if you just saw some ghosts fighting. And they even say sometimes tourists come here and get themselves into trouble. Right. Like, this sounds really mafia-ish. It sounds... <laughs> it, it could be very dark. It sounds yeah. bad. <laughs> it could be very dark. All these ghosts we see. Even I mean, Alex. just muggles. Even Alex is like, okay, so then what's happening to them? You right. Know? It, it's a little concerning. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a place that still does the... You know the the cotillion or whatever you want to call it, however it's pronounced. I mean, they they appear to be very old fashioned. So maybe they're just completely anti Muggle. These these wizard and witches here, uh, obviously, other than I would hope the King family. 
that's also a possibility. It's it's really hard to say because we don't get any exposition about that, right? Nobody kind of goes out and on a limb and says, yeah, this is what happens to them. It's just kind of if they come over here, they get themselves in trouble, and that's all there is to know. Right. I don't know. This chapter is pretty interesting uh, just because we kind of see a little bit about how they live and how life could be like for Alex if she lived in more of a traditional wizarding home as well. But I think the maybe the biggest thing I take away from this chapter is that uh, Miss King would be a cool mom. For she Alex seems to okay. Have. Yeah. Yeah. She seems all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I especially like her and the siblings' relationship. I think they'd be a really fun family members. They would be really fun family members. I think so too. I think I really do think Julia would be like if Julia and Alex had grown up together, Alex would be totally different than how she is now. Right? Because I don't think Julia accepts anything aside from people kind of participating and being excited about things and whatever else. And it doesn't take very long. The first day that Alex is there for her to kind of break and mold more into Julia's ways a little bit anyways. But we do need to talk about the Colonials and the Indians. Uh, the chapter itself and also kind of what we find out about what the Colonials and Indians thing means, uh, especially since you brought it up, Baylor, when we're talking about there's some ghosts that are just fighting each other all the time out in their backyard, it seems like. Yeah, it, it it's strange because it appears they still have this war or like they get bored and decide to go to war again and they have like treaties and stuff that last a couple of years, whatever. Um, but it's also interesting because it it seems like Mrs. Miss King has an agreement with them that they don't fight inside of the the uh, plantation, maybe not plantation, homestead, whatever. Um, so it's it's a it's an interesting dynamic that these ghosts who probably don't know Miss King they still can come to an agreement. I guess it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, I kind of it makes you wonder if. Again, that's the other thing with ghosts in the wizarding world is I do wonder sometimes if wizards have the ability to, like, banish a ghost to get rid of them entirely. And so maybe there's a little bit of that playing into it. Uh, But also, this is an old wizarding family. There's a chance that some of the, at least, the colonial ghosts are ancestors of the kings, right? Or even of the thorns, maybe. Yeah, that's true, especially given the, it seems like they've been in the area for a long time, the family has. I will say that it is a little bit concerning that at one point in this chapter, Miss King just straight up tells Alex, do not go into the woods, it's dangerous in the woods, and that's where we see all the ghosts coming out of all the time. To be honest, I think old Alex from book one would have immediately went in the forest. That night. Immediately, for sure. Which means that new Alex is going to wait like two or three nights and then go probably, right? Yeah, most likely. Yeah. Yeah. I I figured that that was probably coming. 
at some point after after they said don't go in the woods. I mean, it's just too tempting for her. Let's be honest. I thought rereading this, I thought she was going to go in during this chapter. I for sure thought that's what was going to happen. It's too much of a hook. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like that's yeah. not you don't just have your character say, don't go into the woods if you don't want people to go into the woods. Yeah, it'd be like having a path that goes through the woods and, oh no, your wagon got stolen and there's some tracks going into the other part of the woods. That's exactly right. You shouldn't do it because it's dangerous, but by God, <laughs> it's so tempting. Right. This chapter's cool because Alex gets to fly one of the horses, which I think is interesting for a couple of reasons it's a flying horse first of all uh but secondly alex bows to authority without question in this chapter first time ever maybe yeah that seems like miss king is a little bit more of a threat to her she thinks than even dean Grimm is like she takes her pretty seriously Yeah, I mean, the situation is that Alex gets on one of the flying horses and kind of just nudges it in a a circle before landing it again, but Miss King lets her know, hey, if you ever do that again, you will not touch one of these horses, ever. And she's not mean about it, and she doesn't yell at Alex about it. I think Alex might be taken aback by the fact that it's just like a statement of, cold, hard truth more than anything else. I kind of almost wonder if if Alex realizes that this is the first time that she's ever had anything like a wizarding family. I I don't know what what would be the best way to put it, but I think she's realizing that this, this is the first time she's ever had anything like this, and if she messes up like normal, she potentially could lose it forever. And so maybe that's playing a little bit into this, uh, into her behavior here. If you guys had a chance to go on a tour of a magical island on the back of magical flying horses, would you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I probably would as well. I mean, that's why I went on that ride at Harry Potter World, because I wanted to go on a tour through CGI'd Hogwarts. <laughs> Isn't it pretty cool that Alex goes away from Charmbridge for spring break, the place where she's allowed to be magical and participate in wizarding society, and she gets to then, because she went away for spring break, participate more in magic and wizarding society stuff than ever before. I'm going to need you to repeat that question in common English. Oh, I just think it's neat that Normally, to this point throughout the books, if Alex leaves Charmbridge, that's the end of her being able to participate in magical society until she goes back to Charmbridge. And in this instance, it's the first time she leaves and she still gets to be in that society, right? She still gets to have those experiences and be with people that are more like her. And I just think that that's cool for her. Right. Well, especially given her mom's reaction to when she brought up Abraham Thorne over Christmas. I mean... It's got to be even less appealing to return home versus trying to stay in the world where she's welcomed. Maybe not welcomed socially, but like the things that she does are welcomed. That's correct. Like being, a, being a witch. Yeah. 
a complete 180 from her mom's reaction, to be honest. Also a question. Should probably save this for the 2027 Alex deep dive number two when we get there three episodes from now. <laughs> um, But Alex is not very happy with her mom's indifference towards her with the wizarding wizarding world and giving permission to just travel wherever with whoever, as long as she's, you know, not telling her about it. Is Alex like kind of deep down vetting a possible new home in case it's true that what she thinks of her mother, not caring about her or rathering that she was just not in her life. I don't know if she's gotten that far yet. Yeah. To be honest, I mean, she could certainly in the future, but I don't know if she's gotten that far yet at the moment. It it seems to me more that she's just kind of living in the fact that she's at this place at this time rather than thinking about necessarily the future. But you saying that and combined with what you said, Baylor, about how nice it must be to be in a place where she's accepted and she can be who she is, I can certainly see her starting to think that way in the future. Yeah, I honestly didn't, haven't really considered it. Um, but I mean, I mean, if, if if that's a possibility, I mean, I guess you know, I, I'm just I'm stuck on normal canon where Harry still went back to the Dursleys because it protected him or whatever. Um, so I, I honestly never even thought about her potentially leaving on her own to to live with Max and Julia. But I think it's very appealing. I mean, I think maybe what also played in part of her taking that authority from Miss King in such a good way was just the fact that she feels like she's in a place where she can be herself. You know, like she's she's happier as a person. She doesn't feel the need to lash out as much. Certainly the first time she's on a level playing field in terms of being in a place where she is not the only person who's associated with Abraham Thorne, and she's not in the minority of people who are associated with Abraham Thorne either. Everybody at Croatoa is associated with Abraham Thorne, and so she doesn't probably she probably feels like she doesn't have to tiptoe around that issue at all maybe for the first time since she went to Charmbridge and that's the weight off of a what is she 13 year old a 13 year old girl's mm-hmm. shoulders with that also must just be a huge relief well i'm sure she's not thinking about this this is kind of a a big brain play i guess you could say but i mean like in my engineering career you know i would obviously want to do anything that would better my career better my my knowledge for my career and in alex's case i mean if she lives with people who are obviously magical lives in a magical community i would imagine she's probably thinking the benefits of being around magic every day learning all this stuff you know firsthand versus in a book i'm sure it is insurmountable how much better that is than than doing the contrary I agree with what you have to say. I just, this feels like the most natural place for Alex to be, in my opinion, even more so than Charmbridge. Uh, 
she acts like a 13-year-old girl, I think, while she's here a little bit, rather than acting like, I don't know, the crankiest 13-year-old girl in the world. She kind of seems more normal here, which is is nice to read about. Yeah, I agree 100%. We do need to talk about the dress shopping a little bit. The the cotillion, I don't is that how you even say that? I think so. This is what is this? It's an old-fashioned like meet and greet for people who are of age. And, like, ready to be married now, I guess? I assume it's something like that, yes. Yeah. So they're going to get ready for the cotillion in this chapter. It doesn't actually happen yet. And that involves buying new clothes for the girls and, I guess, probably for Max because Julia seems to think that he needs new clothes and she seems like she'll end up getting her way with that. But... More importantly, they go to a place called New Roanoke, which is a wizarding settlement. And I have to tell you that my D&D, this is a cool place, what an awesomely built village brain started exploding (laughs) when I started reading the description of New Roanoke. It seems uh, pretty cool once they finally get there. I mean, in my opinion, all magical places are pretty cool. Uh, but definitely, yeah, just a small village feel in the... Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a neat place, especially the little flavor that, that uh, Inverdi threw in where he says, you know, there was shops that were in the Goblin Market, but obviously they're going to be much smaller and kind of cuter, I guess, than they were in the Goblin Market because it is such a small village. So, yeah, it, it was definitely exciting to read about and, and imagine in my head, for sure. It would be cool if they got to explore it more during this part of the book, but they don't really get to explore it more because Julia is pretty bullheaded about going to Glinda's, which is the robe shop in town, and trying on dress robes the whole day long, and that's kind of uh, what they do. <laughs> yeah, I I actually had a question about that. I... I didn't totally understand if there was something with Galinda's name or her appearance or something that that gave um, Alex this idea about the uh, yellow brick road. Um, I don't know if you guys picked that up or if maybe if just Alex said that out of the ran- out of you know randomly or whatever. I I don't know. I don't know if you guys picked something up there. A name chosen in a moment of wry irony. Glinda's Good Witch Apparel. I have no idea. Glinda is the Good Witch from the Wizard of Oz novels. So Glinda's Good Witch Apparel is just a a pun on the name, I think. Nice. To be honest. Mm. Fun, fun. Okay. Because you're right that there is some stuff about the Wizard of Oz, but they talk about the Wizard of Oz while they're in this. Uh, Glinda does, and so maybe they're talking about the Wizard of Oz because Glinda knows that Alex comes from a muggle home somehow. Uh, oh, yeah, that, that's definitely it. I mean, she, uh, Alex brings up, do you know where to find the Yellow Brick Road 
before uh, we actually find out that Glinda was is a Muggleborn and she knows about the Wizard of Oz and everything. And then Alex and her, while they're fitting her for dresses, um, talk about the Wizard of Oz and Muggle society and all that stuff. That's kind of a fun dynamic, actually, now that I think about it. You go to a wizarding village and you recognize that there's like a reference to a Muggle story or a Muggle movie in the name of one of the shops, and then you have a conversation with the shopkeep about this muggle thing while you're getting fitted for wizarding robes and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I kind of like that. I think that's cool. It was a fun touch with that, and also the fact that Alex was bewildered by the look of some of the dress robes because they they had all the big poofs and all the old-fashioned kind of decorations on them, and, and she was like, don't worry, don't buy those. Those are only for pure bloods. Come over here. We'll find you some better ones. <laughs> it's different when she says it, right? Because she's also a muggle-born, so she can relate to Alex on that level. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This this is not part of the story, but how strange must it be, honestly, to be an adult muggle-born wizard? And so then you go home to visit your folks or whatever, and you, like, sit around and watch TV with them and then you but you know back home you're like magically cooking food and able to teleport places and whatever else. Yeah. Okay, I have something uh, else to bring up. But before I do, I want to build off of what you just said. If you had a wizarding friend who was pure blood wizard and you randomly found him what muggle event would you invite him to? That's a good question. Like, what would he enjoy, or she, the most? A movie at the movie theater. You think so? Well, wizards clearly don't have something like that, as as far as I know. Yeah. Right? And so, I don't know if wizards know the value of sitting in a dark room and watching a moving picture for three hours. I'm close to that, still watching. I think my answer is take him to a really good Super Bowl party. Yeah? Don't even need to know the rules because half the people aren't watching for the game anyways. (laughs) Do do wizards who become friends with muggles, even without telling them that they're wizards and they go to parties with them and stuff like that, do they think they've gone to the future? (laughs) <laughs> Wizarding families don't have TVs or the internet or anything. Right. Like, I don't know. Huh. I wonder how many pure blood wizards are NFL fans. It's kind of making me giddy to think about this because it's like <laughs> it's like it's almost like aliens coming into normal human society a little bit. You know. Right. Would you like to lose your giddiness because that's my second point? Okay. Okay. Now everyone can love what they do. People like different things. There are some people, I'm sure, that love nothing more than selling dresses. However, imagine as a muggle-born, you find out you're a wizard. You go to wizarding school, learn all this magic, and then end up in retail apparel sales for the rest (laughs) of your life. (laughs) Uh, I think your quality of life is better... Probably. As a retail salesperson in the wizarding world than it is in the muggle world? Probably. I don't even know. Boy, what a conversation this has become. Yeah. Do wizards and witches even really 
work in that sense? I don't know. I mean, there's orders. They're technically working. They're working. But, like, somebody in the retail space, she's maintaining the shop, sure. She's taking the money and stuff. But does she really have to put in the work to create the dresses and things? I mean, you don't have to do that in the real world. You know? You're like, not the one who made the dress. I I don't know. I honestly, I honestly think in the wizarding world... Uh, this is just a, a guess, but like a shop, so like like a seamstress or whatever, like Glinda is, you're probably a one-man shop because you don't really need the other workers because you have magic to put together the dresses and all this stuff. I agree. So in, that's, maybe here... That's what, what my a, point was. What about Grundy's? There's not only one person working at Grundy's, and I'm sure it's not everyone's an owner. Well, I'm sure in Grundy's, yeah, there's there's obviously a different, I mean, for the stuff to be lower quality, there's obviously different circumstances. But like a, a name brand, you know, oh, we, we let's go to Glindy, or Glinda's Good Witch Apparel or whatever. Um, like from what I've seen in the Harry Potter series and also kind of in this series is that all of these shops are, are one-man shops or maybe they have an apprentice kind of thing. Um, it's, and so I think all of these people are, instead of like being stuck in retail, they're, they're probably, I guess, pretty passionate about it. Obviously I don't know, but I feel like you'd have to be in order to have your own shop. It's so strange to think about, honestly, it's so weird to think about because like wizards all complete the same level of education. Like, I guess they don't because when they get to OWL and any WT stages, they kind of weed out people who aren't ready for the tougher classes and stuff, but it's not delineated the same way the muggle world is, you know? Like, there's not, oh, you finished Hogwarts, now go to Wizard College. Right. Or you finished Charmbridge, now go to Wizard College, and so you're right about there being, like, aurors, and the people in government are probably making more money, and and have a bit higher status maybe socially or whatever else but we don't necessarily see like poor and homeless witches and wizards and we don't really see I don't know I I think maybe jobs in the wizarding world would be valued more equally than they are in the muggle world so because like you can open a clothing shop and be a one-person show and still have time for your family at home and things like that. I don't know. I'm just saying, if you're not an educator in government or running your own shop or a cop... What do you even do? I guess there's not, not a lot that. of jobs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What are you even doing if <laughs> yeah, you're not absolutely. And I guess a cop's government in that sense. Maybe you're in prison. or... Like, what does Seamus Finnegan's parents do? I don't know. <laughs> one of them's a muggle. Nope. Yeah, one of them's a muggle. My mom's a witch. Maybe there's just like 500 or so reporters in every town for the newspaper. Oh, that's true. I guess news media. I guess we're we're probably looking at this too straight-laced. People that aren't working in government or working in a shop or being a teacher at Hogwarts are doing things like raising magical flying horses and stuff like that. Do wizards yeah. have plumbing? <laughs> yeah, they do. They do? Yeah. 
So there's wizard plumbers. That's established because before they didn't have when they didn't have plumbing, they would just poop in the street and in Hogwarts. It. Yes, but what about like the burrow? Well, I don't think knows? I've ever heard of the toilet in the burrow. <laughs> Why would we hear about it though? I don't know. <laughs> what do they do? I, honestly, if they don't have plumbing, maybe outhouses. They just poop on the floor. Well, they could have an outhouse. Canonically, I guess. My new headcanon is that they don't have plumbing, and instead, when they when they feel that they need to use the bathroom, they just vanish it from within their own body, and it goes <laughs> to somewhere, to Poop Mountain or whatever. Well, like, we'd see Alexandra is taking a bath in this chapter. Is the water filled by a faucet, or a spell, or House an elf? elf? There you go. There's the answer. House, House elves. elves everything. <laughs> everything. That's why you don't need jobs, is you have slave labor. That's why you don't need... Poo is because they'll just vanish it from you when they sense you stuffed. Who knew Glinda would lead us in such a diatribe and such a, like a red herring, but, you know, it's a very interesting thing to consider is what do wizards who don't work like a, I guess, traditional everyday job do for a living? That is a good question. How about this? Professional Quidditch? players there's roughly a hundred witches or wizards <laughs> what are you gonna say Baylor how about this we haven't had one of these in a while because we haven't recorded an episode in a while but how about write in and tell us what you think people do please do it's been like five months since we've had an email <laughs> it has been I'll be yeah. ecstatic if someone <laughs> writes it about this uh Regardless, we're we're going pretty over here. So if we you should... don't write in, there will not be another episode. <laughs> oh, okay, maybe maybe that's not the we'll case. We'll see, but uh, we should jump kind of back to the story a little bit, and we can talk about where witches and wizards would work later on. Maybe they work muggle jobs. <laughs> oh no, that's a problem. What? They'd just be really efficient, probably. We know that they'd be efficient. Kingsley Shacklebolt was the most efficient secretary under the prime minister. Of the UK and ever, probably. Huh. Who was in charge of the <laughs> Quidditch World Cup and Goblet of Fire? I don't know. Ludo Bagman was like the head of... He's an announcer. ...international games and oh, stuff Oh, is he the well. one in charge? He was, but he's an idiot, so... So, that happens, and the Triwizard Tournament happens, and then he just waits a year for the next Quidditch World Cup... <laughs> That's his whole job? Yeah, I guess. Okay. That sounds like a government position, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Anyways. They go shopping. They get clothes. Alex says she doesn't have enough money for her clothes, and Max tells her not to worry about it, presumably because Abraham will just pay for it, or Miss King, one of the two. Maybe it's all the same. But they do come across a person, uh, an elderly wizard, his name is, as Baylor said in the summary, Elymas, E-L-Y-M-A-S, Rolf. Apparently he's very important as well, and he is not pleased that the Kings and Alex are planning to attend the Cotillion uh, because he's worried about the type of attention that they're going to draw while they're there. And... I find that pretty interesting uh, because 
it indicates that there's still negative sentiment towards Abraham, but it also indicates that maybe societal fear of him is going away a little bit. And so people might be more apt to act out, I guess, towards the kings and towards Alex. Like they used to avoid out of fear of Abraham, but now they're just going to be dicks. Right. Right. Yeah, I was wondering, like, if this is going to be a a physical altercation. Like, I guess not physical because they're wizards, but, like, is this just going to be verbal or is it going to come to the nitty-gritty, you know, I'm going to attack you because your dad was Abraham Thorne or your husband? It's a good question. I don't know if this uh, Elimos guy is necessarily saying this in a threatening way. But he's definitely worried that something could happen. And I think it's legitimate worry, especially if Miss King and Julia have kind of been staying out of society for the most part anyways. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder how long it's been since they've been to something like this. I think it's been a while. I mean, according to... Something Miss King says. She's surprised that they know who Alex is, first of all, and that means that it's likely that his other children will be named soon enough. And I wonder if that means that people don't necessarily know that Julia is one of Abraham's children, or if that's talking about the older sisters that are involved, or if it's talking about Max, or who it's talking about. I'm not sure, but they know that Alex is Abraham is Abraham Thorne's daughter which is interesting because she's never been here before. Well, it was outed in the papers, though, right, when Max admitted to it in Charmbridge? It was, but are the people of New Roanoke reading the Charmbridge school paper? I think the indication was that it grew past the Charmbridge school paper. That it had spread further than just that. Could be. It could be. I... It'll be interesting to see what happens at the Cotillion when it happens. Yeah, I agree. I think the chapter ends and this this little section ends with a pretty good indicator that Alex is not done being interested in the woods and what's going on in the woods because she asks Deezy, the house elf, to not feed Charlie as much so that he can go fly out into the woods and maybe Alex is hoping she can get some version of a report back about what exactly is going on out there. And that's it. That's it. We don't have anything after. We don't have anything after. I just now I'm thinking what the connection is with the native American ghosts that exist here. Obviously there was some kind of battle in the past from that, but what does that have to do with other stuff we've learned about native Americans so far in this book? If anything, it's hard to say. There was a little talk there at the beginning of chapter 23. Uh, Alex had gotten a book about the lands below, but it turned out to be a kid's book. Um, and And it kind of was some native American, um, stories, I guess. So maybe she's going to approach these Native Americans and and ask, you know. She might. 
what the deal really is with the lines question. below. Also, That's like something important that we totally skipped over was that book, but Baylor basically hit it on the head. So, one thing that I just thought of: Does this confirm that all Native Americans were magical if they're Native American ghosts? Fighting? I was wondering the same colonial wizards thing. I don't think all right. Like I think it would be similar to how the wizards we know of are. Maybe different uh, tribes were. Magical, somewhere. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, I have to say that I guess ghosts can travel. I don't know if they can travel or not, but it seems weird that there's enough colonials and Native Americans that were able to turn into ghosts and then go have fake battles with each other um, using non-magical implements. Unless this is the site of that 1580s colony yeah. with 120 settlers that just went missing. Yeah. So maybe uh, there was a big battle, and then we're seeing the remnants of that 500-year-old battle. Maybe that's There's why you potential. should go wandering around on this island. Yeah, maybe. Disappear. One fun thing I wanted to point out from this chapter is uh, Alex's dress is a Clemenstra Kirk, and that's the same dress type that Darla and Angelique were like fawning over in yeah. Chicago. Yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun because they would be super jealous, and it's also fun because I guarantee Alex hates it. She does not want it. <laughs> uh, with that being said, though, we don't have an ARC MVP to do. We don't have a rename the ARC to do, and we don't have a prediction to do this time because you made a prediction last time, Baylor, about these three chapters and the next two. So That's it. I think we can just end this thing yeah. where we're at. Part one of the long-awaited two-part episode. Of the return. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if you're hearing the end of this, uh, I hope, very much hope that you'll hear the next part of this arc next Sunday. But for now, I've been Brady. I've been very low energy, Delbert. I've been attempting to backpack Delbert through the podcast, Baylor. We'll see you next Sunday. That's right. Good night. Let's ride. Go Pokes.